It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where our mission is to serve you with advice and information that empowers you so you make better financial decisions in your life. I'm going to start out today with my favorite weekly segment, Clark Stinks. Can't wait to hear where I have messed up. Also today, do you use your apps to get points on free items at places or discounts? Well, a lot of times the apps do things in a way that seem to be dirty tricks. In fact, it's led to some lawsuits because restaurants are pocketing your money, what's called breakage in the industry. And I'm going to tell you about a lawsuit concerning this, and there's two perspectives on this. First, I'm going to tell you why businesses do it. It's not necessarily sneaky, underhanded, and dirty, but that the results are actually dirty. We'll talk about that. But right now, it's time to find out where the advice I've given is rotten terrible. I should have never encouraged you to speak. You must think I'm pretty stupid. You should be ashamed of yourself. Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're right, pal. Clark says, never talk rudely to customer service. I've believed this until recently when AI bots implemented a cuss word policy. The bot will not send you through to customer service unless you use certain bad words. Customers do have the option to state the bad words nicely, but our AI design is forcing our hand, Brian. Have you ever heard of that? That you have to scream and yell and cuss Mm -mm. to get past the the bot? I have said representative very forcefully before. So there was a company that I was having a customer no service issue with. I called, you go through the menu, ultimately... You say on theirs, I don't think it was representative. Maybe you say operator, whatever mm-hmm. it was. And I said it and it says, please hold. And then the next thing, click, I'm gone. <sighs> so then I call back, go through the menu again. Same thing happens. So the third time I was basically screaming at the phone uh-huh. and it hung up on me again. So nothing helped. And then I called back later. And got through and uh, who knows, maybe they were having technical problems or whatever. But I hate this thing where companies believe that it's improved service to make you talk to a robot. Do you ever find that the robot actually does the job for you? Not usually. At the point where I'm calling, I need to talk to somebody generally. So, no. I, I think just, it saves companies money because they weed out people who give up don't or don't need to speak to somebody. Maybe they, but there should always be an option in my opinion. So that's easy to do. So you don't have to hit zero, 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 zero in anger. Maybe, maybe as part of the separation package for CEOs who get fired and get a hundred million dollars in separation money, maybe they should also have to spend a month calling their own company's customer no mm, service. That's a good idea. Clark, you don't really stink, but you could have been more complete when you recently talked about dash cams. Here's some info. One, if you're technically challenged or a procrastinator, you can get a nearby car stereo installation shop to install the dash cam. This costs a little, but it's probably worth it. Two, many dash cams don't include an SD card. 
memory card, but you can buy one at Walmart. And three, you probably need to format both the camera and SD card. But if you stick with it, you can probably get both done in about 20 minutes. Tim in Arizona. Tim, thank you. You know, it's funny because I talk about these $15 dash cams that you can buy on, you know, you can buy them on eBay, you can buy them on Amazon. They're more difficult to use, more difficult to set up. And yes, you have to, often they won't come with an SD card and you got to buy one and then you got to format it and all that. And that will go past the capabilities of a lot of people. So you could have a shop, install it. But if you're going to do that, maybe you buy a more expensive dash cam that you can self-install that comes with the SD card that's already properly formatted. You stink because whenever you talk about umbrella insurance, you never say how to determine how much umbrella insurance is needed. I enjoy the show and listen on my morning walk, John. John, thank you. So first, let me explain what an umbrella policy is. It's where it's an excess liability policy, and I call it a success tax. So you may own uh, automobiles, you may own a home or two or whatever, and you're required to buy liability coverage on them. So if somebody gets hurt, you're held responsible, the liability policy is there, but somebody could have a bad injury or worse, and you get sued for a lot of money, and you could get wiped out. So an umbrella policy sits on top of all the other liability coverage you have and covers uh, eventualities in any part of your life is the design. And you buy them in uh, $1 million increments. The insurers sell them to you amazingly cheap for million-dollar increments, uh, a few hundred dollars for the first million, and each million after that's cheaper. And the idea is that it's almost never going to happen, but if it does, you're going to be really happy because it will preserve what you have. Speaking of which, how do you determine how much? So the simplest, although I've been told by insurance people that my answer is anti-intellectual, but the simplest answer I can give you is you cover your uncovered assets. So if you have, uh, have been really lucky over the years or worked hard and you have millions of dollars in assets, that's the amount of umbrella coverage you want to have. You want to have enough that protects what you have. Now, if you have something that just absolutely is horrendous and somebody gets a ginormous judgment against you, it may not be enough. But usually the lawyer representing a plaintiff is just trying to get at what you got that's easy to get at from your insurance. And that's why I just want you to cover what you got. I enjoy listening to your podcast while walking my dog and would like to have my teenage daughter listen as well. The problem is I don't want to expose her to the grammar. (laughs) I wasn't an English major and don't even speak English at home. But when you say what you got, shouldn't it be what do you have? I thought I heard Krista was an English major. Maybe she can comment on why all these gots are like fingernails on a chalkboard, Diego. Uh, Diego, I grew up in a poor part of the country and didn't get the greatest education. Not true. true. I did grow up in a poor part of the country. was poor at the time I was growing up. But I did have access to a first-class education that I didn't take the most advantage of. So my grammar has always been a weak spot. And Krista, you gave up a long time ago. You used to correct my grammar on when we did radio. And maybe you should do that again no, as Diego. No, I think what you got is fine. It's just a... 
I use a lot of slang, shortcutting phrases. I've always thought of what I do as like the concept of talking to a neighbor over the fence. Mm -hmm. I've always thought of it as so often things talking about your wallet, about money, they're way too stiff. They're way too formal. Um, Those of you who watch the YouTube show, see how I'm dressed. Those of you who see me on the television stations that air me around the country, see that I'm the only person, only guy on TV other than maybe a sportscaster. I'm just in a golf shirt. Everybody else is in a really fancy suit. My thing is that I want to break that wall. And so the casual nature of how I present is actually part of making it more comfortable to talk about topics that a lot of times are talked about in ways that I find are off-putting or uncomfortable for people. Plus, you don't wear suits. You don't even wear golf shorts normally. In your, you wear T-shirts. That's I wear, you. I wear T-shirts. <laughs> My buddies at the bagel shop laugh. What Cozumel T-shirt am I wearing mm-hmm. today? So the Cozumel T-shirt thing I should explain. I'm able to buy eight T-shirts for 20 bucks, $2.50 each in the port at Cozumel. And so I wear those as my workout shirts, you know, my, you know, if I'm doing a project around the house, that kind of thing. So my wardrobe, I don't spend a lot of money on. The dishwasher debate over whether or not to rinse the dishes before loading needs to be addressed from another angle. I have never washed before loading, trusting my newer model machine to do what it's supposed to do. Recently, I've had issues with grit on my dishes after the two and a half hour wash cycle. So I investigated- Two and a half hour? I investigated by taking a flashlight and looking down into the drain area where the food gets chopped up and washed away. I was horrified by what I saw, but oh no, that wasn't the worst. I did a YouTube search on how to clean my filter and did just that. It was something out of a horror movie. My stomach turned in thinking that my dishes were being washed with all of that down there. After spending two hours cleaning and sanitizing my dishwasher, which included using a toothbrush in all of the nooks and crannies of the racks, rails, small parts, etc., Then putting it all back together, I ran a cycle with vinegar in a bowl on the top rack. I no longer have a gritty residue issue. It's recommended to do this two to three times a year if you don't pre-rinse and once a year if you do. And that's from Leanna. Leanna, so help me out here. The thing you did, all the stuff you did with the two hours cleaning and all that, if you just did the vinegar, would you not have to do that or you need to do both of these things? I would think you'd want to do both because there was food caught in there. You want to get all that out of there. All right. It's so uh, we're having this problem with our dishwasher where there's uh, dishes that aren't coming out clean. They are gritty, just like you said, Leanna. So I see my next project. Yep. Ugh. A listener asked you where you go on your travels. You proceeded to give a long-winded response about how much you love to travel. You sounded like a politician who talks around a subject and hopes they don't notice that they never answer the question. Are you planning to run for elected office, Fred? Well, I was planning for years to run for elected office. But no, when I get off on a tangent, I completely forget where I was going. And so that's just me being a flake. So where do I travel? We take a big trip somewhere in the world every two or three months. Europe, Asia, going to go to Australia. I mean, we're doing all kinds of fun things. We're going to Italy on our staff trip mm-hmm. this year. We're going to Italy. So I just love going to other places in the world. Although my wife is convinced that she's Italian and doesn't know it. 
and says, when we get to Italy, every time we land, she says, I'm back in my homeland. And so I travel wherever. And what you heard from me is I just have this innate joy about it. I'm somebody who even loves airports. I don't mind lining up at Southwest in group A, B, or C to board a flight. I just love the whole experience. Everything about it. You basically go everywhere. Everywhere in the world except Antarctica. You preach over and over, do not buy extended warranty plans. If it wasn't for these plans, things in my house would never get fixed or replaced. (laughs) I live in rural America, far from Uh, a town. The companies I contract with on warranties will come to my home to repair or replace without hesitation. I'm not the only one that's an exception to your rule, Pat. Pat, thank you. And that's never occurred to me, the difficulty getting a um, factory authorized repair person to come to a rural area to do a repair, point well taken. Thank you. I know you hate to check luggage, but if I'm away for at least a week, I would rather risk the very small chance of my luggage being lost than the 95% chance I have to do laundry, which takes up valuable vacation time. Just saying. While I know luggage does get lost, you talk about it with such conviction that it makes us feel the odds are overwhelming that your luggage will not arrive at your final destination. The reality of that happening is actually less than 1%. You always say you can't insure everything. I w- couldn't agree more. This seems like a lot of effort to avoid such a small probability. Still love you, Linda. You sure that wasn't Lane, not Linda? <laughs> I, I have finally bent to the will of my family. And when we're on a long trip, I go with my carry-on and I let them check a bag. So I haven't compromised my principles, but I allow them to be their own person And they check a bag, and I would never say I told you so if their bags go missing. You don't stink, but you might want to add another tiny drop of detergent to the cold water washing your black shirts. When a listener asked you if it was fair to leave more money to a child with kids than to the child without kids, you didn't answer the actual question and instead told them they should have the conversation so that shortchanged child isn't taken by surprise. The right answer is no, that's not fair. They should leave their money to their kids equally and let the child with children take care of their own kids. Who knows, maybe the child without kids will leave money to their nieces and nephews, or maybe not. That's up to them. Regardless, it isn't fair. Thank you for what you do, Paul. Paul, thank you. And I hear the passion in your post about this. So what? if you talk to lawyers who do wills, estates, and trusts, when a parent of means is doing their will, it is really not often done where it's just, okay, four slices, three slices, whatever. They really do think about each kid in their personal situation. And the problem I have with it is often they will leave unequal amounts, but they never explain why. And then the will is read after they're deceased. And one kid who gets a smaller portion or none at all is like, what happened here? That's why whatever the intention of a parent is, Please explain it to your children so that they don't later have resentment when you're in the great beyond. You claim to be the man from Roth, but you advise people who are unsure of their income eligibility to wait until year end to make a contribution. You said it would be a mess if they made contributions but didn't stay under the income ceiling. What mess? The mess is two clicks of a mouse to recharacterize the contributions to a non-deductible IRA and then convert that IRA back to a Roth. While technically there are income limits, effectively, the Roth is open to everyone, Billy. And Billy represents several people who wrote in about that. I I thank you for that post. So the two clicks. 
So the recharacterization, if you later then want to move the non-deductible into a Roth, what's known as the backdoor Roth, you have to take into account if you have other funds in a traditional IRA or traditional account that there's a complicated formula about moving money that would then apply. Most people aren't going to have that kind of circumstance. But yes, your point is well taken. I've talked about the backdoor Roth for years as a strategy for people who make a very uh, high income that makes you ineligible for a Roth. And why Congress writes rules like this that just make accountants rich, I don't understand. Because if there's a way to get around the rule anyway that requires this extra work, the backdoor Roth, why not just be about encouraging people to save for retirement regardless of their income instead of having the complexity? So I appreciate the multiple posts calling me out for discouraging people from doing a Roth who are on the bubble of earning too much money. And your point is valid. And I will modify the advice I give on that. And this is exactly why we do Clark Stinks. Because as one person, as any one person, we develop habits, we develop thought processes, and we can miss the bigger picture. We can miss the angle we didn't think about. And I appreciate so much that you take the time to expose me to, oh, like the thing about, you know, I'm so anti-extended warranty and I never thought about the difficulty in a deep rural area getting a tech to come fix something. I mean, it wouldn't even occur to me that that would be a hardship that someone would face. So that's why I appreciate so much because I know it takes you time to sit down and write a Clark Stinks. So I do appreciate it. Coming up ahead, we're going to talk about how getting into the orbit of somebody's app can have benefit and detriment to you. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Starbucks is getting sued about a very common practice now with apps for businesses where you pay through the app instead of paying with uh, plastic or cash or with Apple Pay or GPay or Samsung. Does anybody use Samsung Pay in the United States? Anyway, where you're doing tap with your phone and Starbucks recently was sued about their system that actually is common that absconds with your money if you ever stop doing business 
with a company. So here's what happens. If you are someone who's a regular Starbucks person, regular Chick-fil-A customer, regular Whataburger customer, whatever, and it doesn't have to be fast food, it could be any of a variety of things, and you load stored money onto the app, and that's how you pay. So you go into Starbucks or you order on the app, and you just go and you pick up your item inside waiting for you, or you go through this thing they have that cars go through called a through drive. What's that thing called? I hate drive throughs I will not go through a drive through except if I'm threatened. It's just not going to happen. Anyway, you load money on. But let's say, in the case of Starbucks, they're kind of ubiquitous. But let's say it's a smaller chain or whatever. You loaded money on and they leave your market. And then you've got that money trapped in the app. And generally, there's no procedure offered for you to get that money back. The Starbucks lawsuit, though, goes further, saying you can never get down to zero. You're always lending Starbucks money interest-free because you're always having to add money every time you don't have enough money to purchase whatever it is you're buying. The alternative that many businesses offer in their app where you pay with a stored payment system as you do a purchase. And that's how retailers who allow you to buy and purchase through the app. If you're a Sam's Club member and you use the Sam's Club app to order, or you're in the store and you use scan and pay, where you scan your own items as you go around with your smartphone, and then you slide across and pay with if you have the Sam's Club MasterCard or whatever. So Sam's is never holding your money. The difference, and why is it that quick serve places and restaurants hold your money in their apps, which is the whole allegation of this suit, because of the enormous fees that you have to pay as a business to Visa and MasterCard. The Visa and MasterCard cartel charge in the United States the highest fees they charge anywhere in the world because of the power of their lobbyists that they've been able to get laws in place in the United States that allow the cartel, the price-fixing cartel, that does not exist in other countries. So if I'm a merchant and I'm processing, let's say you go in, at Starbucks, I guess it's possible you could go in and spend two and a half dollars on a cup of coffee, I guess. If somebody doesn't get one of those frilly, frilly espresso or cappuccino or what kind of... Krista, you got to help me here. Since you used to go to Starbucks three times a day and you yeah. don't anymore. I always got an Americano, but you get, I don't know, flat right, cappuccino, latte. Whatever. You get all these kind of different things that yeah. cost like $8. Mm -hmm. All right. So if you're getting an Americano... $2 and something? It's a few bucks, I think, for the size I got. So if you didn't have cash stored in the app mm -hmm. where you add 25 bucks at a time or whatever, and they're putting it on your credit card, the merchant fees will destroy the profit they would make on selling you that low-cost item, and they probably lose money selling you that cup of coffee because of the Visa MasterCard cartel. The lawsuit is against Starbucks, but the real problem is the Visa MasterCard cartel 
that has us with these ridiculous charges that businesses have to pay. So that's why in retail, if you use an app, you pay with the form of payment that you've stored or you add for that purchase, just as you would if you were shopping online. And so it's a much higher ticket. And the Visa, MasterCard, cartel fees have a much smaller impact on the profitability of that business, where in a quick serve restaurant or fast food restaurant or whatever, those merchant fees are so large, that's why they get you to add money, usually in a $25 or $50 block. Nobody's resolved how you get that money back out of the system if you no longer want to do business with that place. So you use some apps. I know you have the McDonald's app, right? And Chick-fil-A. Do you do this? McDonald's charges per transaction. Oh, okay. So, so McDonald's is not, so McDonald's maybe because of their size has been able to go to the cartel and negotiate much lower fees. Maybe because they they're so large. Room? Probably. <laughs> Some warehouse. Um, who knows? But pretty much everybody else charges you the block of money that you then work against. Okay. We'll go to questions. Susan in Florida says, I've read the best high yield savings account information on Clark.com. There are many banks listed, some I've never heard of before. Before I put my hard-earned savings in an online bank, I'm worried about customer service or lack thereof. Can Clark provide any information on who has the best customer service of all the banks listed? Cannot. So we're listing a lot of more obscure financial institutions in those surveys of the best rates on savings and CDs. Our special emphasis is on online savings accounts. And the reason we don't do a filter like we would with other service providers is almost non-existent are complaints about customer no service with online savings accounts. Online savings accounts are not transaction-heavy accounts. Basically, you open one, you put money in, at some point you pull the money out. And they've not been a source of problems or complaints when you're with an FDIC-insured or NCUA, which is for credit union, insured account. So that's why we haven't done that filter. If you were doing a checking account somewhere, that's a whole different thing. Checking accounts are a big source of problems and complaints and truly a customer no service area. So when you're doing a a high transaction account like a checking account, that would be very important. It has not been a priority in my mind at all with the online savings accounts. Paul in Pennsylvania says, I'm over the income limit to receive a tax deduction from my IRA. Oh, so going back to what we had in Clark State. Can I still contribute to my SEP, traditional IRA, and Roth to get any other benefit? First of all, SEP, yes. The SEP is not subject to income limits. You have self-employed income. The SEP is a great way for an entrepreneur in a great year for your either side business or principal business to put great amounts of money into if your self-employment income comes from a one-person entity, you can also look at doing a a self-employed 401k, which is a wonderful vehicle that you can set up for free with any of my three favorite children and pay no fees for the administration, the creation of or whatever of that self-employed 401k 
which is a seldom used device to save by people who have a one-person entity, but you actually should be putting high priority on. As for a Roth, you could absolutely be eligible, as you heard earlier, you could be eligible for a Roth or even do the backdoor Roth through this obscure thing called a non-traditional IRA if you're above the income limits. And just for new listeners, your three favorite children are? Vanguard Schwab Fidelity. Logan in Texas says, why do I always hear you talk about how wonderful 529 plans are, but never about prepaid tuition plans? I had most of the cost of my undergraduate degree paid for by the Nevada prepaid tuition plan, Go Pack, that my parents purchased for me when I was born. The plan was sponsored by the state, and in exchange for an upfront payment, the state would pay for 120 credits worth of tuition whenever the recipient decided to attend a school in Nevada. It would also pay up to the current credit hour cost at Nevada schools toward credit hours at an out-of-state school if the student chose not to attend college in the state. Are these plans worse than investing in a 529 plan? For reference, my parents got a five-time return on their money over the 21-year span between when they purchased the plan and when I finished my undergraduate degree, which sounds like a great deal given that college tuition costs will only continue to increase. Is this a good deal or am I just out of the loop? You are not out of the loop. Okay, so a couple of things you should know. There was a scandal approximately 15 years ago where some state prepaid tuition plans did not have the full backing of their states. They went insolvent. Owners of the plans got hurt. I don't think that is a problem with any state prepaid tuition plan today. The prepaid tuition plans, like the one in Florida, is very popular. You benefited from the one in Nevada. There are not many of these, but they are very viable and have worked great for people in the last 15 years for this reason. Tuitions at state-supported colleges have gone up far more in percentage terms than tuitions at private colleges because state legislatures have de-emphasized financial support to state-supported colleges. So the prepaid tuition plans where the credits were established years before when parents started putting money in have proved to be very beneficial. Is that going to be true going forward? Hard to know. The big limitation, first of all, I don't talk about them a lot because there there's so few states that do them. But the second thing is you are limited to the great benefit being going to a school in that state. And so if you do decide to go out of state, they all have escape hatches like Nevada had had for you. But the great benefit was using those towards tuition credits in Nevada. So if you teach your kid, as I've always said to people who've asked me from Florida, if you teach your kid the fight songs of Florida state colleges from when they're really, really young and brainwash them that the only choice they have is going to a school in the state where you've enrolled them in a prepaid tuition plan, it's a deal worth doing. And I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you heard something useful that you can put to work in your life. And all the things that came up in today's podcast about saving money for the future, I hope you are inspired in your life to save more and spend less. And don't let anyone ever 
rip you off. Have a great day.